Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. So how many songs did Pete Seeger write that really made their way into the Great American Songbook? Now, there is a Great American Songbook. It's Mostly jazz and show tunes with composers such as Ira Gershwin and Cole Porter and Hammerstein and the like. Songs like As Time Goes By and Blue Sky and Georgia On My Mind, Had To Be You, all those groovy orchestral numbers. But I'm speaking with a little more latitude than that. I'm talking about those songs of the previous century that are a part of our collective memory or the memory of a large portion of the population. Pete Seeger contributed directly to that songbook. He had to. He was born to do this. Pete Seeger's parents were both musicians. And here's a picture of their family that I came across this week. His mother is playing the violin here. She was a concert musician who trained in Paris and taught at the, at the uh, prestigious Juilliard School of Music in New York. Seeger's father was equally accomplished. He was a professor of music at Berkeley and at Yale University. And the Seegers often took to the road to simply busk in small towns across North America for the, quote, uplift of the working people. This picture of the family is from one of those road trips sometime around 1921. And that is Pete Seeger in his father's lap his siblings sitting there together at the side. Seeger's parents would divorce a few years later, but that didn't stop the music. His stepmother, Ruth Crawford, was also a musician, and she was a curator and collector of folk music. Pete Seeger was a natural. At the age of 10, he took up the ukulele, mainly to entertain his friends. When he was 17 years old, traveled with his stepmother for the first time to Asheville, North Carolina. And there, he heard a banjo being played for the first time. He attended a square dance. He witnessed hillbilly and Cherokee Indian families moving effortlessly from banjo to fiddle to guitar, singing songs filled with passion and pain, joy, and heaven. And it was according to Seeger, quote, his conversion experience. He would give his life to folk music until his death in 2014 at the age of 94. He gave his life to protest as well. He was on the side of the worker. He came out against the Vietnam War, though he had served with distinction during World War II himself. He was blacklisted as a communist. And when the 1960s rolled around, he was embraced and discovered by a new generation of hippies, musicians, and activists few of his songs, Big Joe Blues, the song slamming Joseph Stalin for his atrocities. 
If I had a hammer, a staple of the civil rights movement, he rediscovered Michael Row Your Boat Ashore, a cover of an old slave song from St. Simon's Island, Georgia. Where have all the flowers gone? A heartbreaking anti-war anthem. And a personal favorite of mine, a recorded version of the hillbilly song, Old Dan Tucker. How many of you know the song, Old Dan Tucker? (laughs) My grandmother sang this one to me her entire life. For my 25th birthday, she already, older than 85, recorded an a cappella version of it onto cassette tape for me for my birthday. To indulge you just a moment. Old Dan Tucker was a fine old man, washed his face with a frying pan, combed his hair with a wagon wheel, died with a toothache in his heel. Get out the way, old Dan Tucker, you're too late to get your supper. Pots on the fire and dinner's cooking, old Dan Tucker just stand there looking. There's about 20 more verses. A couple of them must be about my grandmother's husband, my grandfather, because it's about getting drunk and falling into the fire, but we'll get to that later. Pete Seeger's most famous song, of course, was Turn, 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 also titled Everything, There is a Season. Seeger recorded it, Roger McGuinn and his Limelighters recorded it, Judy Collins recorded it, Vern Gosden, Dolly Parton. But the gold standard is the 1965 version by the birds. The harmonies, the jangle of those instruments, the perfect starts and stops. It took the band 60 takes in the studio to get it right. But it is so right. It took Seeger only 15 minutes to write it. And why not? He only had to write three words. Turn, turn, turn. He lifted everything else from the Bible. Seeger said, I got a letter from my publisher and he says, Pete, I can't sell these protest songs. And I was angry. And I said, well, I can't write the kind of songs you want. You're going to have to find somebody else. But I pulled out this little slip of paper in my pocket and I improvised a melody to it in 15 minutes. And then I sent it back to him And I got a letter from him the next week that said, wonderful, exactly what I was looking for. Seeger simply quotes the first paragraphs of Ecclesiastes 3 and affixes it to that improvised tune. It's not plagiarism. The King James Bible is in the public domain. But it was fairly easy, and it's easy to sing along to, as I invited you to do so. Hippies, capitalists, Communists, anarchists, Americans, Europeans, old, young, true believers, agnostics, we all sing along to that song in perfect pitch together, singing the words of Holy Scripture, singing the Bible. For this is one of those biblical texts that anyone can embrace, and everyone, regardless of creed, confession, denomination, or differences, can proclaim these words as truth. To everything, there is a season. That is, the nature of life is change. Change, not stasis, is the only constant. 
Whatever season of life you are in now, rest assured that season will transition to the next one. Life is a kaleidoscope of adjusting experience. The writer of Ecclesiastes is not issuing commandments here. He's not writing doctrine, saying things like, thou shalt be born, thou shalt die, thou shalt cry, thou shalt rejoice, thou shalt gather stones, not at all. The writer is making observation about how life simply is. You will grieve, you will celebrate, you will embrace, you will withdraw, you will save, you will throw away. You will be at war, you will be at peace. The coin will flip, the worm will turn, the new day will dawn. And whatever and wherever you are, you won't be there forever. You may not even be there tomorrow. For everything there is a season, and seasons change, turn, turn, turn. An example from Viktor Frankl, our guide over these weeks as we search for meaning in life and in the book of Ecclesiastes. He shared this story in a speech just a few years ago. I mean, mean, just a few years after his liberation from the concentration camps. It was about a prisoner in a place called Devil's Island. Here's a picture of Devil's Island. Devil's Island was a French penal colony off the coast of South America. It was legendary for its cruelty and for its disease. The death rate for prisoners that were sent there was well over 75% within their first year. A man convicted and sentenced to Devil's Island would make a stay in a place like San Quentin or Alcatraz look like spring break by comparison. Well, a man is convicted. He's given a life sentence to Devil's Island. He boards the prison ship for the journey to this miserable outpost where he figures that he'll be dead in a matter of months. He's so despondent that he decides that he will take his own life while on the boat. But then, a saving tragedy takes place. The ship that he is on catches fire in the open sea. Panic ensues. Everyone's life is put in danger. The convicted criminal is loosed from his shackles in order to help fight the fire. He acts with such courage and such efficiency that the ship would have certainly sank without him. And the next day, when the ship limps into port, the convicted prisoner is granted an immediate and complete pardon as his actions helped save so many lives. And as soon as that ship is repaired, he reboards and is returned home to his family as a free man. Turn, turn, turn. Quoting Frankel, none of us know what is waiting for us. What big moment, what unique opportunity, what life will expect from us today or tomorrow. Life is filled with changing, rotating, unpredictable events And each one is a summons for us to act upon it, to live, to embrace, to experience. You don't know what's waiting for you tomorrow, but it won't be what happened today. Birth, death, planning, 
harvesting, crying, laughing, grieving, dancing, scattering, gathering, searching, finding, keeping, losing, tearing, mending. Life is all of this and so much more. Be present in all of it. Respond to what is needed and demanded at the time. It is an experience, lived experience, that you can make necessary meaning out of life. Three main things Viktor Frankl taught give life meaning. Three main things. First, he said, the work that you do. We talked about that last week. And the second one today, what you experience, what life brings to you. Now, within experience, Frankel talks a great deal about love. And I'm going to hold off for that till next Sunday, being the week of Valentine's Day and all, okay? But today, think of how your ever-changing experiences, what life has demanded from you, has also provided you with resiliency, hope, significance, and unique meaning. Consider this, any two humans share 99.5% of the same genetic material. Did you hear that? We as human beings share 99.5% the same DNA and genetic material. It's that little 0.5% It gives us our skin color, our eye color, our hair color, and other distinctive features. That would be a good lesson today to all of us that our differences are magnified by culture and they're not near as certain as people make them out to be. Human beings are 99.5% the same. What gives you your uniqueness, what gives you the difference is your experience. Now, granted, it is a common human experience, but for you, it is completely unique. Think about this. You are the only person like you to live at this stage in history. You are the only person to have the parents and siblings that you had in that combination thereof. You are the only person that produced or raised those children that you call your own. You are the only person to have loved the way you have loved and who you have loved, the only one to have worked the way you have worked, thought the way you thought, and acted as you have acted and believed as you have believed. Your life cannot, can never be duplicated. Here's a quote from Austrian poet Robert Hammerling. He says this, What you have experienced, no power on earth can ever take away from you. All you've done, all you have taken in through your senses and into your soul, all you have thought, all you have suffered, all your joys and triumphs, all your happy mornings and sleepless nights, all the prayers of gratitude and all the cries for help. You brought them into being with the single, solitary life that God has given you to live. And all you have done, 
all you have experienced, the roller coaster of normal life has brought you to this moment, and there will never be another moment or another person like you. Here's a slide, an obscure Greek philosopher 500 years before Jesus. We all step into the same river. That is, we all live the same human life, but we do not share the same water. What flows around and about us, what carries us and sometimes threatens to drown us is a stream of water in which no one but you has ever stood and no one will ever stand in again. Because the water keeps moving. Now, did you know when you woke up this morning that you were so uniquely wonderful and special? Did it cross your mind as you brewed your coffee that no one ever has had that exact moment, that exact coffee, that exact experience, and that exact life, and no one will ever have it again? Speaking of coffee, it's one of the great joys of my life. Can you say amen? Anybody? Woo, yes, hallelujah. I don't drink as much coffee as I used to. My days of drinking an entire pot of coffee in the mornings are over. My heart can't take it anymore. But it's okay. That much coffee isn't good for you. And it forces you to really savor that one cup that you get. And I don't drink decaf. I'm sorry. Decaf is a waste of water and an abomination before God. If you can't drink regular coffee, don't drink coffee at all. <laughs> well, adding to the joy of the coffee, maybe, maybe only two mornings a week, only two because of our schedule, Cindy and I will get to have our coffee together. She will be on the couch. She has to sit on the couch because the dogs demand to sit with her. And I'm in an old brown chair that I love. No television, no music, sometimes no talking. And we might read a little news and discuss. We may go over our schedule for the week. We'll gossip about our families. We'll try to get on the same page for whatever is happening that day. It's unhurried, it's uneventful, and it's irreplaceable. Now, a lot of the time, our conversation turns to our life together and what we have experienced over the decades, you know this conversation. Do you remember that time when the conversation began? Can you believe that happened is another conversation. How did we survive that? There's a common question. What happened to all of the years? Do you remember when your dad did this? Or do you remember when my mom did that? Then we might turn to the future and again gossip about our families. I have to be deadly careful right here. My mother-in-law has a habit of watching this on Sunday mornings. Hey, Ruth. Our parents, our children, our plans, our hopes, our frustrations, our fears, our aspirations to get to that location or that travel to that exotic place. And we aren't unique, though our particular experience is unique. You have the same conversations with your spouse or your children, your partner, your friends. When you stop and ruminate a little on the life that you have led, 
all the experiences that you have had, all that might and could be waiting for you in the future, be it good, bad, ugly, terrifying, or exhilarating, how can you not come to the conclusion that it has been nothing but extraordinary? What a blessing, a true divine grace to have even lived the life that you have had. Dr. Uh, Ali Benazir wrote a column 15 years ago, and I have it in my keepsakes. Let's go over it. He is both a philosopher and a physician. These two disciplines come crashing together in this column. Let me just read his words rather than paraphrasing. On my birthday, I had a strangely pertinent thought. What's the probability of me being born? First, let's talk about the probability of your parents meeting. If they met one new person of the opposite sex every day from age 15 to 40, that would be 10,000 people. Let's confine that pool of possible people that they could meet to one-tenth of the world's population. 20 years ago, 400 million people in the world. Half of those would be op of the opposite sex. So let's say the probability of your parents meeting ever is 10,000 divided by 200 million, which is one in 20,000. Now let's say the chances of them actually taking, talking to one another is another one in 10. And the chances that turning that meeting into a second one is one in 10. And the chances that turning that into a long-term relationship is one in 10. And the chances of that lasting long enough to result in offspring is one in two. So the probability of your parents' chance meeting resulting in kids is about one in 2,000. So the combined probability is around one in 40 million. Now, things really get interesting. You are the result of the fusion of one particular egg with one particular sperm. Each sperm and each egg is genetically unique because of the process of meiosis. The probability that one sperm with half your name on it, hitting that one egg with the other half of your name on it, is one in 400 quadrillion but we're just getting started. I love this part. Because the existence of you here now on planet Earth presupposes another supremely unlikely and utterly undeniable chain of events. Namely, that every one of your ancestors had to have lived to reproductive age. Going all the way back to the first Homo sapiens, it's 150,000 generations. What would be the chance of your particular lineage to have remained unbroken for 150,000 generations? Well, that number is so staggeringly large that my head hurts just to write it down. And then he says this, the same chance that two and a half million people would get together and play a game rolling a trillion-sided dice. And then, each and every individual playing that game, all 2.5 million of them, would have to roll the exact same number. 550 billion, 343 million, 
79,001. And then he says this. It is an event, a miracle, so unlikely as to be almost impossible. By that definition, I've just proven to you that you are a damn miracle. Now go forth, live like the miracle that you are.